Let's open our Bibles, Matthew chapter 18. Last time we, uh, we talked about children's ministry or ministering uh, the heart of God towards the little ones and, you know, young believers as well, God's children. But, you know, there's some great principles in there and, and some that we seek to uh, put into practice here in our uh, youth church and our young people's ministry you know, to welcome them. He says to uh, <clears throat> welcome them in verse 5. If you welcome them in, in uh, His name, you welcome Him, Jesus said. Uh, in another uh, chapter, it says that we need to bring them to Jesus and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Don't cause them to sin, He says. God holds us accountable for how we treat them, and uh, He talks about taking serious action about our own sin, he says, don't look down on one of these little ones. He shows us the, that he has a heart to rescue them, and he wants us to be part of the rescue team, that he cares about the one individual, and you know, when one wanders off, one sheep wanders, or, or one sheep is lost, he cares immensely about that one, that individual. He cares about each one of us in a, in a powerful, in a very special way. Now today... Um, I want to, uh, to move on from there into verse 15 and following. And today, does anybody know what holiday today is? Boxing, Boxing Day, that's right. You know, It's a public holiday um, in a lot of countries, the UK, Australia, and many, many other countries. It's a public holiday, Boxing Day. And uh, you know, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word Boxing Day, but you know what I think of, you know. You know, and the day, the day after Christmas, you know, you know, we've kind of like we've had all that we can take of this kind of stuff with our families and everything, and we're ready to go at. Actually, the, in in most countries, um, the box kind of the Boxing Day that was kind of came from an idea they'd put an alms box, you know, in the church on Christmas Day, and people would put something in there for the poor of the parish, and then these boxes were always open the day after Christmas. I'm reading uh, here which is why that day became known as Boxing Day. But, but there are, are some countries um, in some, uh, I read this in some African Commonwealth nations, Ghana, Uganda, Malawi, Zambia, and Tanzania, where they have prize fighting contests. They do have boxing matches on that day. And uh, Italy, I guess, as well. So I can understand it in Italy, you know. Sorry. My wife is half Italian. I can get away with it sometimes. <clears throat> but, you know, after all these holidays, you know, stuff can break out. And I've, I, I've heard a couple of comments even just in passing, people saying, you know, you know kind of, you know, the, the, the stuff, you know, you kind of put up with and you have to deal with. Well, you know, there's this need to get together. There's need to, to make things right and, and uh, battles that happen between us and and, uh, but in here, he's talking, of course, about battles between believers and maybe also sin in the church, things that are wrong within the church. And Jesus here outlines some steps. Of course, we saw many chapters ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. But look at verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Notice that the goal is to win them over, not to win the fight. 
But, it, you know, he gives us some very clear steps. And the, the first one is to do it personally. Don't, you know, go to him yourself privately. Don't, you know, become, you know, a, a, a source of gossip. Well, so-and-so did this to me. And, and we talk to everybody but the person that's involved. We all do that, I know. But if something happens, you know, we need to go to the person. I read this, though, and I, I want to... Uh, Read this. It's a little bit long, but it's from the Life Application Bible Commentary. He says, first go and, and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. He says, a personal confrontation carried out in love will allow the sinning member the opportunity to correct himself or herself. However, the person doing the confronting ought to be very certain of his or her accusation and that he or she is doing this out of true humility with a view to restoration of the other. This call is not a license for a frontal attack on every person who hurts or slights us. You can't use this first to say, you know, you're going to go around and correct everybody who's ever done anything wrong to you because you're going to be very busy. And you're also going to be very bitter. The Proverbs say, you know, it's the glory to a person to overlook a matter. There are times when we just have to let stuff go. And we'll see at the end of this chapter to forgive. And part of forgiving is to let go. If you have to go to everybody that does every little thing, they looked at you funny, you know, and, and stuff that, that, that really isn't even real sometimes. We have these imagined things. We have to be careful, but, but there are times when we need to do something. We need to go to somebody. Do it alone. Do it privately. Do it personally. Say, so, you know, and, and, and be careful with your attitude and our attitude when we go to that person. Listen, I, I, this is bothering me. I need to talk to you about this. Can we talk? Can we pray together about it? Can we, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know instead of going, well, you are the, yeah, you did this, and yeah, you know, we just like attack back, and, and we're like a dog that's in a fight. Which makes me think about a proverb, uh, one that you've perhaps heard before, this idea of when we, when we go to other people and we talk to other people about a problem we have with somebody, it, the proverb says this, like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel not his own. See, we get other people involved and then they get involved, it's like grabbing that dog by the ears. And when, you know, have you ever tried that before? That just doesn't work very well. Getting involved in things we shouldn't be involved in. One of the things that you and I need to do is say, listen, have you talked to that person about that? Well, no. Well, why don't you go and talk to the person that's that you're in, having this problem with? Talk to them directly. I don't want to get involved. I remember somebody sitting, you know, sitting talking to me, and, and they started going off on this, and I said, you know, you need to go and talk to that person about that before you get me involved in this. This life application, it says many, um, many misunderstandings and hurt feelings can be solved at this stage. This saves church leaders from getting involved in everyone's personal concerns. Also keeps believers from gossiping with one another. Instead, believers are to be mature enough to, to go directly to the source and deal with the problem at that level. Again, the goal to win them over. Now, it doesn't, always, it doesn't always work, and that's why he goes to the next step, verse 16. 
But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Maybe we need some help. Maybe one or two wise people, uh, mature believers that we, you know, uh, bring along and talk together. Maybe, you know, to help, again, to help to, to break this problem, break this issue. Uh, one commentator said this, if we see this as the next step, we may reconsider whether it is really serious enough for that. Is my case really so serious that I can get one or two other persons of sound judgment to go with me? Or am I perhaps making a mountain out of a molehill? In other words, if you need to get some other people involved, you need to really be sure that this is serious enough to do something about. Or is it just something you need to let go and pray for that person? Pray for the situation. Again, it, it, this isn't a prescription that we need to go and confront everything, everyone, every time, you know, head on. And, and uh, there are times for these things. But there are times when, you know, what does it say? The scripture says love covers what? Over a multitude of sins. To cover over them and, and love them. Verse 17 says, if he refuses... To listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So there's a, a, a situation when it gets bad enough where the church gets involved or whatever. And this is really kind of only as a last revolt, uh, resort and, and really only to restore. Only to restore. And, and, <clears throat> and you know, the... Again, it's, it's, I think in rare cases that, you know, maybe perhaps we don't deal enough with people uh, and we've gone to one extreme, but I think other extremes, I, you know, I've heard of places where, you know, um, you know, ministers were calling out people's sins, you know, right and left from the pulpit and, and it's, it's a travesty, it's, it's wrong. I think, uh, you know, there are times when we need to do certain things. Let me give you a couple examples out of the scripture because uh, that's really the best examples that we can have. And in Romans 16, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. He says, keep away from them. Those that cause division and, and, and causing problems, stay away from them because they're just stirring up stuff. And there, there comes a time when we need to just say, you know what, I, I can't get involved in that. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to keep building all this division and strife up. In the book of 1 Corinthians, however, there's a situation. There was six, uh, sexual immorality. And, and uh, you know, in the church, and Paul was like, he was, he was shocked at, that, you know, the stuff that was going on. And, and they were like proud, like we're so, you know, we're so accepting and we're so, you know, we can put up with so much. And Paul says, listen, that's, you know, that's not it. That's not it. He says, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? He says, you are proud. Shouldn't you have been rather filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? There's a place and a time when we have to say, you know, what, what you're doing is, you know, for, and, and this, you got to be very careful about this. You know, again, it's a rare kind of circumstance that this would happen. But somebody who, who, who's, who's saying, listen, I'm, I'm a believer, I'm following Jesus, I'm, I'm you know, I'm uh, walking after Jesus Christ, and yet they're, 
let's say, for example, they're doing something that's very, very immoral, and everybody knows about it. Well, you know, you can't just you can't you, you turn a blind eye. You can't just always cover over something. You need to, you know, maybe perhaps, you know, deal with it. He goes on to say, he says, uh, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? That's a pretty strong, those are strong words. Hand him over to Satan so he can kind of get it together. But if we just condone and we accept and we say that's cool, it's not cool. You're allowing them to continue, you see. And again, this isn't, you know, for little minor things. You know, I'm going to, you know, we're going we're gonna to excommunicate you because you, you know, spilled coffee on the carpet or something, you know. I mean, this is serious, serious, you know, Im- immorality or, or serious kinds of things that we would even think about getting involved in something like this. He says, you know, that one of the reasons that you need to do something is because that little, that little bit, it spreads. It spreads, and, you know, it spreads to other people. Yeast works through the whole batch of dough. In 2 Corinthians, though, they did what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that Paul urges them now to... Uh, to restore, and he says the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. He says, now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. This is an actual case that happened in the church there in Corinth. Paul says, okay, you know, he's realized that he's repented. He's done the right thing. Now you need to just pour your love out upon him, restore him, encourage him, reaffirm your love for him, forgive, comfort. Again, in rare, rare situations, you don't see many of these kinds of things in the Scripture, but from time to time, these kinds of things are serious. There was a pastor in a church in Philadelphia uh, uh, by the name of Boyce. Uh, he was there for many, many years, and he shares these words. He says that it's obvious from the way Jesus develops these points that a number of important principles are involved. Number one, he says this, first, upright conduct matters. Sin must be dealt with, and there are times for that. He said, second, discipline is to be kept as private as possible involving as few people as possible. If it can be worked out between two individuals, that's best. And thirdly, he said, the purpose of these steps is the restoration of the offender. Good stuff, important stuff. We need to know where these verses are. And and again, I think what he's saying is right on here. Moving on to verse 18, he kind of in the context here, he, he, he says these words. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he talks uh, the next verse, verse 19, about prayer. And it's kind of interesting how it's all flowing out of this passage and that we've, we've just looked at, the, the power of prayer and, and, and the authority. Uh, John Corson says that binding and loosing speak of the authority the church has in, in dealing with matters where sin is flagrantly, consistently, and obnoxiously practiced, doing something about it. 
But I think also there's this idea of prayer, and we've seen this earlier in the book of Matthew, this idea of binding and loosing. There's this idea that prayer and and, uh, prayer has an effect in in the world where we need to uh, bind sin and evil and loose forgiveness and grace and healing. Look at verse 19. He says, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Again, this, in the, this situation of prayer where we pray about things, and I think I've been impressed by this so much recently that we need to be praying about these things. And, and, and before we would ever even get involved in any uh, situations like this, we need to be praying first and praying more. The power of prayer but not only just the power of prayer, but the power of prayer together. He says, if two of you on, a, on earth agree, that's where we would get together and pray. And, 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 and you would agree together. You would find agreement in that prayer. I think it's good to pray together with others. I, you know, you, you, you still, we are still, of course, uh, you know, uh, within the confines of the will of God, right? You can't pray for something that's against God's will and expect him to do it. In 1 John 5, it says, it still must be according to God's will. But when we get together and pray with someone else, pray with others, we talk about what we're going to pray about or whatever, and, and maybe even as we talk, and then as we pray together, we begin to understand things a little bit differently. And, and not only that, we begin to affect the situation because of the power of prayer, you see. When I'm just praying on my own, I might have this idea, and I might, I might have it all completely wrong. But when I get together with you and pray with you, I might start to understand it a little better. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? When we gather together and pray and we agree together, radical things can happen. So I want to encourage you and, and, and that, that we need to pray more. And not just because, you know, uh, you know we're going to be so spiritual or anything. And, and not that we can tell everybody that, you know... Again, we we talked about this in our, our Wednesday night. We, you know, uh, you know, I'm 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 come to this place where you know we tell people, you know, I'm such a prayer warrior. I'm so strong in prayer, you know. No, it it's actually should be the other way around. You know, I'm so weak. I need to pray. We're so weak. We need to pray. But praying with other people, and and I think this Wednesday night thing, what's been happening here is is just blowing my mind. We're take, we're, we've taken a couple weeks off, and I really miss it but because of the holidays, but, but I look forward to it because God is doing something, and, and as we begin to pray before stuff happens, I've, I've just seen God doing things be, because we get together and simply pray. So you can pray together with someone in your house. You can pray together with your spouse. I remember for a long time it was hard for me to actually pray with my wife. I'll be uh, completely honest with you. I don't know why. It... You know, when the first years of our marriage, it was like, it was like very hard for me to get those words out. Let's pray. Let's pray. They wouldn't come out of my mouth. Why? I don't know. Stupidity, probably the biggest reason. But, but, you know, you get the words out and then you pray together. He says here, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for. Okay, I understand with a husband and a wife, you may not agree about everything, but as you pray together, you begin to agree. As you talk about it and say, let's pray about this, you begin to agree. 
We've got to pray with someone, pray with our spouse, pray with our friends. I want to encourage you, and, I, and this is something we've been praying about on Wednesday night, is that we want to be available for you to pray with you after church at the end of the service. If you have a need, this verse says that, you know, you get somebody to agree together with you and pray with you about it. We've seen through the years people who have come and, and prayed about things after the service, God do incredible things. Prayer. He goes on to say in verse 20, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. His very presence with us together when we pray. That's incredible. Those are incredible verses. And, and you know, what more can you say about them? But what, what he says there, I think, you know, to, to understand when we gather together, when we pray, it says it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. You know, we've got this big blizzard coming. It's not here yet, so relax. Norman is going to let us know if it comes during church, right? So we can all race home. We've got to stop at the um, Cumberland Farms and get the milk and the bread and all that. But um, maybe you've already done that. Have you all done that? See, I've got you all freaking out now, I know. Bread and milk. But, but I, knew, I knew, you know, with the way the situations were, you know, the day after Christmas and the storm coming and everything, you know, there, there'd be people that just may not make it here. But, but, you know, Jim and I talked about, you know, hey, you know, let's get together. We're going we're gonna to do what we do because if two or three, we didn't talk about this verse, but I was thinking about it. If two or three gather together, come together, then Jesus is here with us. So even if just a few showed up, if 10 were here, if five were here, if two were here, I know two were going to be here because I was dragging my wife right along with me to get down here. We were going to at least have two. And so we could gather together. And Jesus, is, he says, I'm here. He's there with us. Jesus is there with us. Praying together. When we gather together in his name, we agree together. We gather together, even in our homes. We agree about anything that we ask for, it will be done by our Father. Where we gather together in His name, there He is in our very midst. Peter now, he's hearing Jesus speak about these words. And, you know, Peter, he comes up to Jesus in verse 21 and he says to Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? How many times should I forgive? And, and part of this whole process and part of this whole scenario that Jesus is talking about is the, the nature of forgiving others, not holding, uh, you know, that, and part, what forgiveness is, is that we're not going to pay them back. We're not going to get vengeance on them. We're not going to uh, go and try to harm them. We're going to let it go. And so Peter came and said, Lord, how many times do we have to do this? Seven times? And he thought he was being pretty magnanimous, if I can use that big word, by saying seven. Because the rabbis taught that it was three, only three. And when you got to four, no. No more forget. If they come back to you three times, okay, you can forget. But the fourth time, no, it's over. You're maxed. You've reached your limit. I think we're kind of like that sometimes, aren't we? 
Oh, man, you're at four. Some of us are at two. Some of us are at one. No, no forgiveness for you. Jesus answers him, and Peter, Peter kind of, you know, again, he limits it to seven. He jumps all the way to seven from three. But Jesus says in verse 22, he said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or seven times seven. It can actually be either or. The point of it is not which of those two it is. The point of it is that it can be more than you can count. More than you're going to keep track of. I know some of us, maybe we keep little books and we got, you know, the, we're, we're, we're going to go to, you know, 77 or 490, whatever it is, and we got the, you know, okay, yeah, okay, one more, one more. And some of us have those little books. Maybe we don't write it down, but we got it up here. But it's hard to keep track of 490, right? Or even 77. It's hard to keep that high of a, a tally going, right? So the point of what Jesus is saying is that there's got to be no limits. No limits. No limits for forgiveness. Which, on the other side of this whole coin, is what? Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. <clears throat> unforgiveness. Who does unforgiveness hurt? Who? Us. Yeah. Us, the people who don't forgive. That person might be dead. That person might be uh, completely unaware, lives completely somewhere else. You don't have no contact whatsoever. And, and if we uh, uh, are holding unforgiveness against them, it hurts me. It hurts us. Hebrews 12 talks about bitterness, and bitterness does come in. And it's like a root, it says, and it, it springs up, it grows up, and it defiles many, this bitterness that comes. And I think unforgiveness brings that bitterness. It's one of the things that brings the bitterness. Now, that doesn't mean, thinking about this verse here, that doesn't mean that we just keep letting them do it, right? I mean, the first part of what we talked about was there, there was a time to speak to them and say, listen, you know, this is... This is not good. This is what's happening here. But forgiveness, 70 times 7. Jesus then gives them this parable as an example that we should forgive just like we've been forgiven. And that's the principle here that Jesus gives us in this parable, that we should forgive as we have been forgiven. Look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had sold had be sold to repay the debt. This is the situation. There was a, a huge, huge debt. It was impossible to repay. He was not able to pay. And everything was to be sold to pay the debt. And it wasn't enough anyways, but, but really uh, in, in today's uh, uh, money, it would, it would be millions, 10 million, 20 million, millions and millions of dollars, impossible to, to, to repay. So in verse 26, the, six, the servant says, fell on his knees before him, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
But look what happens in verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Canceled the debt and let him go. He didn't make him pay. See, this is part of, of forgiveness is that you're canceling the debt. You're letting it go, letting them go. The debt was paid in full. The, the, the servant could not have paid it anyways. He was saying he would. You know, he was asking for uh, time to repay the debt. But the master, it says, he just canceled the debt completely. And he let him go. There's a passage in Luke chapter 7 that tells us that he should have been affected very deeply. And the passage says there, was two, there were two men who owed money. One man, uh, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And, and uh, it says neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I, be, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. He, he, it should have affected him very, very deeply that he had such a huge debt taken off of his shoulders. It should have affected the way he treated everybody else in life. But that's not the case, apparently. Look at verse 28. It says, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, like 20 bucks. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Same request that he had, he had just given to the to the uh, master, very different response, though. It didn't affect him at all. It didn't change him at all. Verse 31, or excuse me, verse 30, he says, but he refused. Where am I? Verse 29. Yes? 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Completely different response. Verse 31, And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Others had saw, saw what had happened. It says they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master the testimony of this particular person. Others saw. They went to the master. What's the master's response in verse 32? It said, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The debt was reinstated. Why? Because he wasn't willing to forgive others. He had been forgiven much, but he was unwilling to forgive little. You kind of know where Jesus is going with all this, right? He's forgiven us this mammoth debt of sin, someone wrote, which we could never repay. And yet, he says, some professing Christians refused to forgive a fellow Christian for some petty imagined wrong. 
a passing remark or an impatient word, sometimes, sometimes even something said in fun. He said grudges are harbored for years. should be said once and for all that an unforgiving spirit is utterly unchristian. We've had this huge debt of sin taken off our shoulders. Can we, we, we've been forgiven. We should be forgiving others. I know it's not easy sometimes. But that's what, that's what Jesus is teaching us. That's what he's telling us. Someone said this, no one can ever say, I've forgiven enough, now it's time to hold a grudge. Can't ever say that. There's no room for that. No, no time that you can ever get to that point. It's enough, I've done enough. We get to that point, we, we think, you know, I've done enough. I've... But, but Jesus is saying we can never get to that place. It's not okay to hold a grudge now for us. We need to forgive our brothers from our heart. Paul says in Ephesians, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. He said it again in the book of Colossians. He says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as, me as members of one body you were called to peace. Paul says the same thing that Jesus is telling us here. Forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I want to close with a couple of <clears throat> quotes. And uh, <clears throat> the first one is, is uh, by John Corson. Uh, Calvary pastor in, uh, in the state of Oregon. He says these words. He says, we all, know, we all know people who are in torment and in prison because they will not forgive someone who's wronged them. He says they're restricted, tormented, uptight, tense, angry, bitter, harsh. You see, the Lord tells us to forgive, not for the sake of the offender, but for the sake of the one who has been offended. He says this, maybe you see yourself in this story. Maybe, you, maybe you've been hurt so badly you just can't forgive. Maybe you're imprisoned, robbed of joy and peace, but you don't know how to get out. He says the answer lies in this passage. If Jesus says we are to be people who forgive over and over again, how much more will our Father forgive us when we go to Him and say, forgive me for not forgiving, Lord. Change my heart. We pray, help us, Lord, to be forgiving, even as you are. We confess our bankruptcy and our inability to forgive apart from your work in our hearts. So what he's saying is that, is that we can even honestly look at ourselves and, I can't, and say, I can't forgive, Lord, I, I don't have it in me, but, but because of who you are and, and the forgiving God that you are, you know, help me to be more like you are, you see, and to pray and ask him. When we can't forgive, be honest with him. He knows. He knows anyways, right? God, help us to be people who forgive because we are people who are forgiven. There's a story, and I, and I, I love this story. I've, I've told it years ago about a, a father in, 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 a, in Spain, about a father and his teenage son who, who uh, they, they had these problem with each other. The relationship becomes strained. 
So the son ran away from home, and his father, however, began a journey in search of his rebellious son. And finally in Madrid, in a last desperate effort to reach, to find him, the father put an ad in the newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And the next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness and love from their fathers. Stuff happens, doesn't it, in families especially. And the last story I want to tell you is about Corey Ten Boom, who uh, spent part of her life and her family uh, in a concentration camp uh, because they were harboring Jews during the Holocaust. And it says that years after her concentration camp experiences in Nazi Germany, Corrie ten Boom met face-to-face one of the most cruel and heartless German guards that she had ever contacted. He had humiliated, degraded her and her sister. And now he stood before her with hand outstretched and said, Will you forgive me? She writes there, she writes, I stood there, with coldness clutching at my heart, but I know that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I pray, Jesus, help me, is what John said. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current started in my shoulder, raced down into my arms, sprang into our clutched hands, and then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I have never known the love of God so intensely as I did in that moment, she said. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. That's powerful, isn't it? Why don't we uh, close in prayer? Ask God to do what He wants to do in us and through us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we have been able to share here this morning. And we look to You, God. We look to you, Lord. This world has conflict. This world has trouble, strife in our families, in our relationships, in all areas, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, perhaps, in our church. God, we ask you to guide and direct us. We pray for that forgiveness and that uh, grace that you showed to us, that we might show it for others, Lord. Help us, Lord. It's not easy, Lord. Perhaps people have hurt us and we need to forgive that we might be healed, that we might be set free. Father, work in us, Lord. We thank you as well, Lord, and we again, we take this opportunity, this time to to speak about the cross where you showed that love, that forgiveness, where you gave us your all to forgive us, that all we need come to to do is to come to the foot of the cross and say, yes, I receive. I receive that forgiveness for me, for my sin, that I might be totally forgiven, completely forgiven, 
because of the cross, because of the blood that was shed for my sins. We come to you this morning, Lord. We pray you'd help us. We respond to you, God. Help us in our lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.